Hi, everyone. Welcome back for another week of Sisters in Crime. I'm your co-host, Sarah, joined by Kate. Hello. And I know you missed us last week because we missed you guys even more. And Mm -hmm. we're sorry for skipping out on last week. But today I'm going to be telling you a story about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And just as a little added bonus, we also have an episode-inspired cocktail for this Heck yeah, one. we do. <laughs> so I'll have that up on the um, website. So you guys have that to make while you listen to this podcast. Yeah. So go ahead. Go ahead. Pause. If you're at home, go make that cocktail and then hit play so you can enjoy the Tommy gun while you hear a little <laughs> bit about Al Capone. Yeah. Um. When I was like a freshman in college, I was obsessed with Al Capone. Remember that? Yeah, not we with went, what he did. Well, not with him necessarily, just like learning about what he did. Well, because he was like one of the most infamous, notorious gangsters in America. And mm-hmm. we actually even went to Philadelphia. And while we were there, we went to the Eastern State Penitentiary and we went and saw his uh, jail cell. Yeah. And that was interesting because it had a whole ass bed, like a nice yeah. ass bed, um, <laughs> like a, out. A, a cabinet. <laughs> For his like dishes or whatever, I don't even yeah. know. For his a lamp, yeah. yeah, like, like a, a bar. sitting area, <laughs> probably like a bar cart. I'll, a I'll rug. post. I'll post the picture up on um on Instagram and the website for you guys to see. But it's pretty interesting. It's yeah. uh, it's comical. Yeah, it really is. And he was in there for tax evasion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't even like that's all that they could get him on. Yeah, it's so funny. And we're going to talk about that on this episode. So buckle up and stay with us. When you think of February 14th, you think of Sweetheart's Day, Valentine's Day, uh, you know, a holiday. Uh, some might say is a hallmark holiday designed to profit off of those who have a significant other. But I'm going to tell you another version of this holiday, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Yeah, you are. (laughs) But uh, let's back up a little bit. Uh, To preface the story, the 18th Amendment in 1920 had made the sale of alcohol legal, turning bootlegging into an illegal earning From this came gambling, prostitution, and speakeasies, and the rise of gangs across the country. And one of these gang members we know all too well is Al Capone. My friend Al. (laughs) (laughs) And as far as crime logic goes, to get to the top, you need to eliminate your rivals in the illegal trade of bootlegging, gambling, and prostitution. And that is just what Al Capone set out to do when he took over from his boss, Johnny Torrio in 1925. Johnny had actually, quote, retired to Brooklyn after he was seriously wounded in an assassination attempt in 1924. And three years after Capone took over for Johnny, his net worth was around, oh, 100 million. And his estimated income for a from bootlegging and the other illegal activities I just mentioned was around 60 million a year. And just to put this into perspective that his net worth is equal to 1.4 billion today. (gasps) And his yearly estimated income is worth 882 million today. Dang. So just to put that right. (laughs) So just to put that into perspective for y'all. So George, Moran, who is referred to as Bugs, 
was an Irish gangster who controlled Chicago's north side brothels, casinos, and illegal booze distribution. And this put a target on Bugs's back because Capone wanted control over the whole city. Let's go back to that crime logic, right? If you're not at the top controlling everything, then who mm-hmm. really are you? Right. So this put a you know the target on Bugs's back. Um, and he did he, he, Capone didn't like to share, okay? He just <laughs> So as an act to take more control over Chicago, it's comp- conspiracized that Capone sent some of his men to a garage on the north side of Chicago on February 14th, 1929, to shoot and kill seven men associated with Bugs. The garage the men were shot in was owned by Bugs, which is where he ran his bootlegging operations out of. The seven men were lined up against the wall and shot to death by men dressed as policemen. Some 70 rounds of ammunition were fired. One man was barely alive when Chicago's 36th district arrived. They pressed him to reveal what happened, but he wouldn't talk. And the victims were Moran's guys, including the Goonsberg brothers, which I'll talk about in a little bit. And an optician, Dr. Reinhardt Schwimmer, who cavorted with criminals for thrills. Like this dude just loved <laughs> to hang around. Like think of, to me, I think of a nerd. That's like kind of made friends with these gangsters and was like, yeah. yeah, like I'll come hang out with you guys. What? Yeah, let's go do cool shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to this day, the massacre remains one of the biggest unsolved cases in history and was never officially linked to Capone, who technically had an al- alibi because he claimed he had been at his home in Florida during the time. Which just because you ain't in the state doesn't mean you didn't hire the hit. Mm-hmm. But we'll get into that here in a little bit. And actually, Bugs was on his way to the garage and missed the killings by minutes. He later told a reporter that, quote, only Capone kills like that. <laughs> Capone. Re- <laughs> way to go, Bugs. <laughs> and then Capone retaliated from his home in Florida and said, quote, the only man that kills like that is Bugs Moran. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> so. But during my research, I did come across an article by ChicagoMag.com where the site is suggesting maybe Al Capone wasn't behind the attack and maybe it's just the outcome of revenge. And according to the article, there is suggestion that the assassins might have had the Goonsbergs, who were brothers, and had a knack of getting into trouble. Maybe the motive was business-related. I mean, almost every day in Chicago, someone somewhere was hijacking a bootlegger's truckload of booze or muscling a speakeasy owner to get him to switch suppliers. These encounters almost always ended in violence. The first theory that was pursued was maybe the assassins had been cops and Frank Goonsberg was right in blaming them. After all, the men were dressed like cops and got out of a car that looked like a police car. But investigators dismissed this quickly and began to work on the theory that the Purple Gang was behind the massacre. Now, the Purple Gang was from Detroit and it was assumed that they could have been acting in retaliation for the recent hijacking of a truckload of their whiskey. Members of the gang supposedly rented a room from Bugs's garage to watch for the arrival of his men that day, and it was also theorized that it could be related to an election. Bugs was later considered a suspect at one point because he was seen driving past the garage a little after the murder, and after a whole five days of theorizing, authorities reverted back to their original notion, saying they have new evidence suggesting the massacre was the work of actual police officers. Oh, interesting. And just to make a note, um, Bugs was seen driving past the garage a little after the murder because he slept in that day. (laughs) That's why. He was heading to the garage. But during my research, they said that he had slept in that day, and that's why he wasn't there. Oh. 
So the new evidence was Bugs's men had stolen a truckload of liquor from a crooked cop and had retaliated. The Evening Post quoted a witness who said that the car seen in front of the garage was a, quote, police squad automobile beyond any doubt. It even had a gun rack fastened on the rear of the front seat. A week after the crime, a stripped down, burned out Cadillac was found by the cops, a car similar to the one used in the St. Valentine's Day massacre. David Stansberry, who was the lead investigator for the state's attorney office, mentioned he could, quote, name 50 motives for the crime, but no one stood out as being important enough to be called the probable cause of the murders, end quote. Stansberry did mention that he was fairly sure Compone was not involved. So that's the investigator saying that Compone was not involved, which is interesting. Yeah, unless he's just scared of him. Maybe. After the massacre, Capone used his violence to consolidate control over Chicago by ruthlessly gunning down his rivals. And in 1920... <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but it is I know. kind of funny. In 1924, authorities counted around 16 gang-related murders, which continued until 1929, reaching a high of 64 murders in one year. Dang. With, with Capone's rise to the nation's most notorious gangster, newspapers started calling him public enemy number one. <laughs> so let's back up about a month after the massacre this is kind of the start of capone's downfall herbert hoover takes office as the nation's 31st president which is about seven months before the stock market crash however it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows with the crime rate in the nation from all of the gangs hoover's mission was to eliminate gangs and all of the violence in cities such as chicago and now with capone's new nickname as public enemy number one put a target right on his back. Hoover wanted to make an example out of Capone to show that the kind of violence Capone used wasn't tolerated. And according to an article published by the Chicago Mag, there is an excerpt that reads, on March 20th, Hoover met at the White House with a group of prominent Chicagoans. Quote, they gave me chapter and verse for their statement that Chicago was in the hands of the gangsters. End quote. The president recalled years later in his memoirs. Quote, that the police and magistrates were completely under their control, that the governor of the state was futile, that the federal government was the only force by which the city's ability to govern itself could be restored, end quote. So this is the president, like the Chicagoans telling the president all wow. this. Johnson could have brought Capone in on an accessory to murder for the St. Valentine's Day massacre to at least question him, but it never happened because Hoover was always a straight shooter and wasn't one to play dirty. He didn't want to bring him in on charges and then possibly scare him, or he wanted to bring him in on like legit charges, nothing that Capone could get out of. Right. And actually, Capone was arrested a few months later on carrying a gun in Philly. <laughs> so, and he got out of that like within no time. Right. In December of 1929, police got a big break in the massacre case. Fred Burke, who was a well-known bank robber and hired gunman, smashed his car into another near the police station in St. Joseph, Michigan, which is about 100 miles from Chicago. He was chased by a cop who he ended up shooting dead. And when police searched for him at his house, he wasn't there. But what they did find was a huge arsenal, including two machine guns, seven revolvers, 11 tear gas canisters, and enough ammunition to support the overthrow of a small government. Dang. <laughs> Ballistics tests provided dramatic results. Burke's machine guns were the same ones used in the St. Valentine's Day massacre. It's very sus. Even though 
they found this. He was never charged with a crime. And if the police did question him about the massacre on February 14th, his answers were never made public. Fred was eventually arrested on March 23rd, 1931. So over a year after he shot the cop and he was finally brought in on charges and arrested for that murder. He was sentenced to life in prison, but suffered a fatal heart attack in prison and was never pressed for answers about the St. Valentine's Day massacre. Wow. Chicago Mag makes a point that only one answer makes sense. If the feds couldn't pin it on Compone, they preferred to at least permit the cloud of guilt to hang over him. And maybe that's why Fred was never pressed for answers or brought up on charges for the massacre, even though he had the weapons with ballistics that matched the ones at the scene of the massacre. Now... Let's fast forward four years to January 1935 and Brian Bolton, a known bank robber who was looking to reduce his sentence, decided to talk about the St. Valentine's Day massacre. He says Fred Burke and four other men are the ones behind the violent crime and Capone is the one who ordered the hit. Byron says he knows this because he was the lookout. And of course, his story makes huge headlines, even though some of his story has some holes in it, such as one of the men he identified as a killer had an alibi. Another discrepancy was why would Capone hire so many men for a job that required one assassin? Sending in a hit squad was completely out of character for Capone. It would have been easier for Capone to hire a gunman to wait in a car across the street until he got a clean shot because it's assumed Capone would have wanted Bugs dead who wasn't even in the garage at the time. Which begs the question, why wasn't there another hit placed on Bugs if Capone was behind it? Right. Because of all these holes and questions in Bolton's story, nothing ever came of it. With Bolton's confession making headlines, it actually did catch the eye of a Chicagoan named Frank T. Farrell, who sat down and wrote a letter to John Edgar Hoover, who was the head of the FBI at the time. The letter was dated January 28, 1935, and wrote that he had information that might be useful to the feds. Farrell was doing, quote, undercover investigation work, and he doesn't give any more detail than that. But uh, and he mentioned if the FBI checked Chicago police logs, they would find a 40-year-old former firefighter named William Davern Jr., who was the son of a Chicago police sergeant, had been shot during a bar fight in November of 1928. Farrell said Davin Jr., who was the firefighter, was the key to unraveling the mystery of the St. Valentine's Day massacre. Davern had been in the kitchen of the C&O restaurant at 509 North Clark Street, which was a popular gangster hangout when a fight erupted. Davern was shot in the stomach. He was carried to a car, driven to the corner of Rush Street and Austin Avenue, which is now Hubbard Street for all you Chicagoans, and dumped there. He was just dumped there. Wow. And this is the crazy part. He crawled to a fire station call box and rang for help. Oh, my gosh. And, and then he was taken to the hospital where he held onto his life for a month. And Davin oh. kept his mouth shut the whole time <sighs> talking to the police. However, he did tell his first cousin, William White, who he grew up with in Chicago, who shot him. So he told his first cousin who shot him. He gave White several members of the Bugs gang, including the Goonsberg brothers. So let's take a minute and talk about who Will White is. His nickname was Three Fingered Jack because either a boyhood accident or a botched safe cracking job, and accounts varied on that, had taken two of the fingers on his right hand. Think of this not so good looking criminal. He was a beady eyed, bald, and double chin man. The Chicago Mag refers to him as, quote, he was even tougher than he was ugly. <laughs> 
<laughs> wow, that's insulting. So he ain't no Chris Evans. <laughs> <laughs> he had made like it. <laughs> he maintained status as one of Chicago's most vicious criminals with a rap sheet as long and savage as the processing line at the Armor Meat Packing Plant, which was a quote from Chicago Mag. <laughs> okay, now let's go back to Davern being shot and telling his cousin who was behind it. According to Farrell's letter, he said that once Davern died, White made up his mind to avenge his cousin. White was familiar with using cop uniforms to disguise his men when committing crimes. In 1926, White and the Goonsberg brothers allegedly worked together on the $80,000 robbery of the International Harvester Factory on 31st Street. They had used eight men for the job, and when one of them ratted to the cops and started naming his accomplices, White arranged for two men to disguise themselves as police officers and murder the rat while he slept in his own bed. White said that people tended to be more trusting when they saw men in uniforms and tended not to notice the distinguishing features of men in uniforms. It was assumed that White could have gotten the uniforms from the crooked cops he knew, or maybe even his uncle, Sergeant William J. Davern, which was the father of the guy yeah, who got shot. Yeah, his uncle. Hmm. Very um, disturbing thought. Men in uniform, no one pays any attention. Right. Farrell's letters help explain why so many of Bugs' men were in the garage that morning, why they were dressed well, and why they never fired their guns when faced by their intruders. The letter also offers a clear motive, one with enough emotional power to explain the massacre and may even account for why the investigation went nowhere. If it had gotten back to the sergeant giving White the cop uniforms, or if they had connected any kind of evidence back to the sergeant, it could have caused some major issues in the Chicago justice system. One eyewitness who came forward that could corroborate the story mentioned the man who stayed in the car behind the wheel had a finger missing, and they were sure of this because his hand was spread like out on the wheel, making it very apparent it was an old amputation. And let's remember, you know, White only has three fingers. Right. And the he's uglier than sin. And he's uglier <laughs> than sin. The police never did follow up on this lead. White turned from vicious criminal to federal informant and supplied information to the feds on Chicago hoodlums in exchange for their protection. And according to the FBI documents released under the Freedom of Information Act, if John Edgar Hoover knew of White's role in the St. Valentine's Day massacre, the Bureau might have helped cover his tracks for fear of losing an informant and jeopardizing the lives of the agents who worked with him. But when you are living in Chicago, which is the capital of gangsters and violence, White was viewed as a rat once his once known courts knew of his new job and killed White in his own home. And the killers were never caught. So White was murdered and nobody. Right. Nobody wow. cared. Yeah. So when Hoover received Frank Farrell's letter and all the information inside, Hoover replied that the gangland killing was a matter for local police and of no interest to the Bureau. In hmm. other words... As far as he was concerned, the case was closed and Farrell was never heard from again. Recent attempts to locate his family were unsuccessful. Well, yeah, because he probably had to go into hiding. Could you imagine? Yeah. Crazy. So, what do you think? Do you think Capone was behind one of the most well-known unsolved cases in history? Yes. Even if... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Even if he wasn't behind the massacre... It lit a fire under the federal prosecutors. As we know, feds were able to bring Capone in on income tax evasion, and he wound up winning an 11-year sentence, which is the longest sentence given for that crime. <laughs> Capone's comment on his sentence was, a blow to the belt, but what can you expect when the whole community is prejudiced against you? 
<laughs> yeah, that's all it is. Prejudice. Not that and you're it was, a raging criminal. It was actually said once the massacre happened, Chicagoans, like, there was an uproar in Chicago and was like, this is absolutely ridiculous. Like, you guys need to, the federal government needs to get involved because it's gone too far. Like, prohibition has gone too far because that's basically why there were gangsters. Oh, because yeah. Because they can make a living. Yeah. And, like, Chicago was just in an uproar because they had had enough. Once this massacre happened, it was almost like it was too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's like this is like stuff that happens in movies. I can see right. why it's like, oh my gosh, get, yeah. get it under control. Um, Capone did have his regrets and was interviewed dozens of times by psychiatrists and prison officials. He mentioned he wished he hadn't been so friendly with the press because the publicity put a target on his back. He felt that his lawyers had failed him and the judge assigned to his case had been unfair. He apologized for the grief he had caused his mother, wife, and son. He never spoke of the St. Valentine's Day massacre, and when he was released from prison, his mind was wrecked by syphilis, and his criminal power was gone, and he spent the rest of his days in his Florida home. And that's the tale of the St. Valentine's Day massacre and Al Capone. So when I was researching this, I mean, I knew of the massacre, but I, I just thought it was always pinned on Capone. I never knew that he wasn't officially yeah i mean charges and i never knew that there were other theories behind it yeah i didn't really so much either but it is interesting there is a lot of good theories i mean there's definitely reasonable doubt he didn't do it i think it's very suspicious that when frank farrell's letter got to the head of the fbi he just it was just dismissed yeah i think there's something behind that yeah maybe capone didn't do it I was more like comic relief when I said yes, absolutely. But <laughs> well, also like another valid point is if he was trying to shoot Bugs, Bugs wasn't in the garage. So if he really was trying to kill Bugs, why didn't he make another attempt? Right, he's Al Capone. Like he could, if he wanted he to do it, it, he would have done it. Right. So that's our thoughts and theories. Let us know what you think. You can comment on our blog post on our website or go ahead and send us a message or comment on our Instagram post, Sisters in Crime Pod. Um, We also want to know what you think about the episode-inspired cocktail. And then Mm -hmm. we also want to remind you to review us on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen to us and send us a screenshot and we will send you a personalized thank you letter with a sisters in crime sticker yes we will and if you have any suggestions for what you want to hear next time let us know yes please let us know we're always i mean we always want to hear that from you guys so if you want to hear a specific episode reach out to us send us a dm i try and put it up on the instagram stories um but feel free to reach out to us anytime. So I think next week is a Kate-inspired episode. Yes, it is. And we will see you back here next Thursday. Bye. Bye.